Welcome to 20 Minute Topic. It's me, Marcus Stead, with Greg Lance Watkins, as usual. Things now feel very different to how they were prior to the election. Boris Johnson has a sizable majority of 80 in the House of Commons. The EU withdrawal bill got through the House, the eyes 358, the nose 234. We have a Speaker who is a man of integrity and of humour. And the United Kingdom feels like a very different place all of a sudden. I think this is a huge improvement for British politics. And have we had the negotiating strength and majority and responsible, honest action from our MPs, who had, of course, everybody conveniently forgets, promised the British people that they would obey the outcome of the referendum. We would have been out of the European Union in March last year. However, um, we're still not out, uh, though we will be putting the proposition um, to the European Union, the oven-ready deal, so to speak. And by oven-ready, yes, it is oven-ready, but it's a long way from cooked. Yeah, this, uh, is what I, this is what I want to focus on now, because you and I were talking some considerable time ago about um, a very easy way out of the European Union, comparatively easy, and your friend, the late Christopher Booker, wrote about this going back two, three years ago now, was for Britain to join EFTA, the European Free Trade Area. And that would have had Britain inside the single market, but outside the customs union. It was not perfect, but it was a similar sort of Norway-style arrangement. Theresa May never went for that, and neither did Boris Johnson. But Boris Johnson has got a deal of sorts together now. And to be clear about exactly where we are with this deal, what will happen is we'll come back in January... They'll, they'll go through the House of Lords. The House of Lords might kick up a bit of a fuss uh, over a short period of time, but it won't count for much. The United Kingdom will then leave the European Union at the end of January, but that will be the beginning of a process that will take until the end of next year, December 2020, at the latest, of negotiating all the de- all the details of the terms of Britain's departure. There will be an extended transition period, which will take us through most of 2020. If we'd gone for the EFTA option all along, this could have been avoided. However, this is not a disaster by any means, is it? In fact, um, the EFTA deal was only ever going to be a stepping stone. It was not going to be Britain would leave the European Union and join EFTA as a long-term solution, because that still left us in areas of the European Union that we had voted against. Uh, It was a leaving ploy, uh, which would have made a tremendous amount of sense. Uh, But uh, by the time Boris Johnson was in a position to negotiate doing that, uh, I I personally believe too much water had gone under the bridge uh, for it to be a probability, uh, it would have had difficulties of its own. Anyway, in actually leaving, when you say leave, leave on the 31st of January, this necessitates, firstly, that the European Union agrees their, the deal that they negotiated prior to the election and the terms thereof, uh, and there will be uh, sabre-rattling I think we can be assured from some of the the short-sighted, self-important uh, European 
mostly unelected polit so-called politicians who will be trying to show off. Uh, now, I'm glad you mentioned that because we saw the day after the election, Guy Verhofstadt, who is one of the first names that springs to mind when you say things like that, he said the United Kingdom will now leave the European Union. But I also think that you are correct because what the European Union is trying to do is to make it look difficult for the UK to leave because they know that their project is in big trouble well beyond this country. You look at Italy, Greece, Portugal. These are all countries, particularly Italy in the short term, that is moving in much more of a Eurosceptic direction and they want to make it as unappealing as possible for countries like Italy to leave. I think you've missed out the most important of all of them from that point of view, and that's Poland. You think Poland is close to leaving? The Polish people on Poland, dare I say it, on polling have shown fairly strongly that the majority of Poles believe that they would be better off out of the European Union. And that is despite having had a Pole, uh, a Polish politician, as president of the European Union for the last period. So this suggests, doesn't it, that... We can see how the project, the, the whole EU project is disintegrating in one way and another because different EU countries are pulling in completely different directions. And once the United Kingdom is outside of the European Union, they could potentially fall like a row of dominoes. I think that it's now a case that the European Union in the next few years is going to be faced with a very clear choice. They can either dismantle this project safely, brick by brick, and form a different kind of mutual cooperation in mutually beneficial areas between European nations, or they can wait for the whole thing to implode with far more catastrophic consequences for the 27 member states. Talking of catastrophic consequences, since the late 1990s, I have said that it is absolutely inevitable if the European Union does not radically reform and start to dismantle the political aspects of the Union, we can look forward, and we should make a point of being out of the European Union by the time the wars of disassociation commence, as people realising it falls, to, it's going to fall to pieces, become acrimonious and try to seize off assets to compensate for the damage it's done to their respective countries. What people overlook is that the European Union is a Franco-German concept for the benefit of France and Germany. The design is for what is always termed a greater Germany, minded that the origin of the word France is Franks, and the Franks were one of the Germanic tribes that the French, who have a very large agricultural base, and the Germans, who have a very large industrial base, would be in a position, through particularly the CAP, Common Agricultural Policy, to transfer French agricultural wealth with Germany for their German industrial wealth, to stabilize across that huge region. Now, the second that you have put together France and Germany as highly cooperative 
And uh, let's face it, France and Germany are the influencing factors of the European Union on almost everything, then every other country is merely a milk cow for that Franco-German construct. Yeah, and to put that into terms, the tangible terms that people can see for themselves, one of the great levers we see with the economy, if you if you want to calm down um, the economy or, or to stop it overheating, is to adjust interest rates. And what we're seeing, particularly in southern Europe, where youth unemployment is very high indeed, is that altering interest rates, which is an option that the Bank of England has in this country, or historically it was the Chancellor of the Exchequer who changed interest rates, they don't have that option. They are stuck with a totally unsuitable interest rate. And that's just one tangible example of how it's run for the Franco-German benefit, as you rightly say. But bringing this back into a British context now, um, what we're looking at, to be absolutely clear, from January onwards, the end of January, right the way through 2020, is many months of negotiation about what the future relationship between the United Kingdom and the European Union will be like, but we'll be doing it from the outside, talking inwards. What do you think the key pitfalls are for Boris Johnson and his negotiating team when they're forming that relationship? Well, one of the pitfalls is that when you say many months, we have until July to negotiate the terms of leaving because they are going to have to be in place before the long summer holidays of the European Union bureaucracy and the British Parliament, um, because there will be a very short period, um, just October and part of November, to tidy up the absolute details for the final, dare I say, the final interim agreement, uh, which will be in place for December, and uh, the formal process of actually leaving because until then we will be continuing with almost exactly the same rules and regulations as we have had over the last few years but what, what does would, what does Boris Johnson need to be aware of what does he need to be aware of pitfalls not not so much traps but things he could end up signing to that are not in the national interest what are the big ones to be aware of well i think the first thing to be aware of is that whatever document we sign at the end of it won't be British law. It will. Um, it won't be based on Saxon law. It will be based on Roman law, which is completely different. Now we must this time bear that in mind. We failed to do it with the Treaty of Rome and every subsequent treaty of the European Union. Uh, our politicians were too stupid to realise that they were signing documents in a completely alien form of law that bore little or no resemblance to that of Britain, net result, we were perpetually out of step with the European Union. So he must avoid that pitfall for starters. For second, he must ensure that they don't try to put in traps. And they will. Because uh, that's that's what I mean. What, what sort of traps do you have in mind? Because I'm thinking along similar lines to you here. They desperately will want to put in traps like this contract will continue for indefinitely. Uh, well, what's indefinitely actually mean and how do we end it? Uh, this contract of the Euro European um, aerospace industry uh, will be continued because, for instance, we make wings for Airbus in Britain and 
uh, various other parts. And we must ensure that we actually have a say in what we do. Uh, it's just as we folded uh, effectively British aerospace into the European aircraft uh, and space project in the belief that we would, because it was the European Union, be partners. Were we partners? Were we hell? We didn't even have shares in it, whereas they were owned by uh, France, Germany and Spain. Although we thought we were going in on an equal partnership basis. It's all, the devil is in the detail in all of this. However, Boris is now in a position to say, look, don't play silly games or we'll just walk away on World Trade Organization rules. This will pull the European Union up short in the realize of the damage that would do. It wouldn't be good for us, but it would be a damn sight better, as even Theresa May realized, and she had voted sturdily as a Remainer, however she acted honorably to honor the agreement that of obeying the referendum, the decision of the British people, which was a very clear majority in favor of leaving. What was presented to the House of Commons on Friday was the withdrawal agreement in its rawest form. And by that, I mean that the compromises Labour tried to get through before the election were gone. In particular, Jeremy Corbyn's wish, which was agreed to by the government at the time, of aligning workers' rights in the UK to that of the EU. Now, whatever direction you think we should go in with regards to workers' rights, to me, it is an absolute that that is a matter to be decided by the United Kingdom Parliament. It's not something to be decided by Brussels. For better, for worse, for right, for wrong, change this, change that. It's a matter for those we elect. And therefore, it is absolutely right that that element has been taken out of the withdrawal bill. It's absolutely right that it's been taken out of the withdrawal bill. Uh, it hasn't been taken out effectively of British legislation because although there were many a lie from the Labour Party about workers' rights, uh, being lost, just as there were um, endless lies from the Labour Party about selling the NHS to America, when, let's face it, the NHS, the biggest sale off of the NHS was under the Labour government uh, through public-private finance initiative. Which we're still paying for. Uh, we're paying £76,000 million 76.9 million a year to rent back hospitals that we had already paid for in full, uh, where the Labour Party had sold off those hospitals to raise funds for some of their dafter ideas. Where also, uh, we have had much noise from Labour about workers' rights. Uh, they couldn't give a damn about the workers, none of the millionaires they've got on the front bench of the Labour Party in their comfortable multi-million pound homes in Islington and the like. They've lost touch with the realities of uh, the Labour Party. They're just politicking with the difficulties of running a government because they've had nothing to do with it for years. And workers' rights that they claim are 
only there because of the European Union, were mostly put in place by Tory governments in the European Union and would have been put in place with far less fuss had we stayed out of the European Union. Workers today would have far better rights in this country because they would be tailor-made for Britain, not for every country in Europe where actually the laws made tend to fit absolutely nobody at the end of the day. And finally then, I was watching a little bit of the House of Commons. I haven't sat through every minute of it religiously or anything like that, but I've seen enough of the House of Commons in the last three days or so to know that there's a much, to use a slightly cliched phrase, a much better positive vibe about the place now. As I said at the start of the podcast, we've got a speaker who is a man of integrity and humour and does his duties properly. We've got a government with a clear majority that has a very clear idea about what it wants to do. But in any democracy, and this is the only sour note I'm going to include in this, in any democracy, the opposition has a very important role in holding the government to account and looking like an alternative government in waiting should the government of the day go badly off the rails. And at the moment, with the state the Labour Party is in and with the state of the sort of leadership candidates they appear to be putting forward, there doesn't seem to be much sign of an effective opposition on the horizon. And I think that is one very serious problem we're going to have in this country. The Labour Party does not have credibility and therefore we don't have the sort of opposition we need for democracy to function effectively. The problem is actually worse than that, um, but I'm not worried about it. I think the problem was typified by the uh, calling of uh, the House of Commons to the House of Lords by uh, Black Rod, uh, when the it, it is quite normal for the leader of the government and the leader of the opposition to walk out alongside each other, usually chatting amicably as they process uh, to the House of Lords. Corbyn barely greeted Johnson. He didn't say a single word in the whole of that fairly long walk between the two uh, chambers of parliament and um, he looked as if he was chewing rusty nails uh, or had swallowed a wasp. Uh, then the, spe- the next speech he made, having come back uh, to the House of Commons, I am astonished he didn't do exactly the same as he did when he lost the 2017 election and claimed that they had won. He did try to by saying that um, the Tories had won by implementing all Labour's policies, uh, which, of course, was absolute bunkum. Um, Labour had taken the worst thrashing that they've had since 1935, and his party was wholly and totally discredited with past prime ministers and past leaders castigating him for his utter incompetence. Yet there wasn't one sign of contrition. There wasn't one sign of magnanimity. There wasn't one sign of generosity of spirit in his the speech he gave. He was still making it as if he had some sort of relevance when everyone knew he didn't have any relevance with the government. And he probably, at the, when one looks at it closely, had less relevance 
with his own backbenchers. I see Labour as the opposition totally, completely and utterly discredited. And for as long as they've got dead wood poison hanging round their neck, like McCluskey of the Unite Union and various others, the party is doomed. There will be no Labour Party in 10 years if they keep on like this. My thanks as always to Greg and my thanks to you for listening. Greg and I would like to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and please join us next week for the final 20-minute topic of 2019. Have a fantastic Christmas and we'll see you then.